Hi, and welcome back to the Active Travel Podcast and to the start of our second season. So we had a bit of a break from autumn in 2020 to fit in the media awards and various other things that we were all working on, but we are now back for 2021 with season two. So we are kicking off with a look back at those Active Travel Media Awards from November and interviewing some of the winners. We started the Media Awards in 2019 to recognise the impact that media reporting had on active travel and wanted to recognise in particular some of the good practice in the field. The second annual awards event was virtual this time and we had nine categories up from six in 2019 with a 10th special award category for Brian Deegan and Bob Davis for Ideas with Beers. So Charles Quitchell is the Active Travel Media Awards only double winner, picking up awards in 2019 and 2020, both in categories recognising in-depth research or investigative work. Charles is the founder of Fair City, which is a transport think tank based in London. Now, Fair City describes himself as a team of built environment professionals advocating for sustainable transport and empowering individuals to make reasoned travel choices. They say they're embracing the in-between, the small things which are often overlooked, but which collectively can add up to big changes. So welcome, Charles. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to have you on. So you're kind of an unusual one in terms of the sort of media angle, because you are an architect. Uh, you left your job as an architect in April 2019 and launched Fair City in October that year. A month mm-hmm. later, you won our first um, media award for your piece titled Burning Bridges, which was published on Fair City's website about the closure of London's Hammersmith Bridge. And the second, Sharing the Load, is a two-parter on non-commercial cargo bike use in London, which was published January 2020, which won our most recent award. And so that was published pre-pandemic. Although your site isn't a traditional news site per se, our judges were enamoured with the research you put into the pieces, which are journalistic, in that you speak to people, you tell a story and you do the research um, to put that story forward. So perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about those pieces, how you came up with the ideas and how you approached them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's important to point out that for Fair City, we're all about co-creating fairer cities. And as you say, by empowering um, you know city users to make more reasoned travel choices. And and for us, cities are really about people and it's about the story as well, the narrative. Um, and I think so for the, for the Hammersmith Bridge piece, first of all, when the bridge initially closed in April 2019, and that was to motorised transport, I should point out. So I was walking across the bridge several times a week and um, as, as was, was everyone else. And back in those days when you could go up to people and, and talk to people on the street, um, I was actually walking across and I spoke to a lady and I said, sort of said to her, Oh, it's a bit of, bit of a drag, isn't it? You know, w- w- having to walk across the bridge to get to the bus stop on the other side. You know, and she turned around and she said, no, it's fantastic. It's it's the best part of my day. Um, you know, I get to sort of relax, unwind after work. I can walk across the river. And I really think that got us thinking about how these conversations were going on um, a- across the bridge, you know, a- across all sort of times of the day. And um, people were sort of engaging with one another, conversing with one another. And um, we sort of wondered then, you know, are there broader well-being benefits to the closure of the bridge? Because I think, as has been well established since the bridge closed in April 2019 to motorised vehicles, there was this prevailing narrative that actually this was a fundamentally bad thing. And, you know, everyone was sort of universally upset about about this closure. But actually, 
that wasn't the case. So I think what we did then is, as you say, we sort of surveyed users on the bridge. Um, there had been none of the surveys that had been done. I won't name names, but they were fairly unrepresentative. Um, a lot of sort of leading questions such as, what's the worst thing about the closure of the bridge? <laughs> so <laughs> we, we approached it from a different point of view um, where we were trying to be neutral and trying to be trying to be sort of fair and actually conducting the surveys on the bridge itself over a four-day period just to get a flavour of what people were thinking about the bridge and, and I guess as importantly how they want the bridge opened in, in future. Just a few anecdotes before maybe I tell you a bit about some of the findings but for instance there was a young couple that lived on the south side of the bridge and you know they said that they used to get deliveries every day and since the you know the closure of the bridge to motorized vehicles they they stopped doing that and, and they started cooking more um and then we had a young boy who actually sort of contradicted his mother and got her to change her answer to the survey which i thought was fantastic <laughs> uh, she wanted cars back on the bridge and he said you know mom what about my asper um so I think, again, I mean, aside from, you know, the, the findings of the survey, it was these little anecdotes and these vignettes of city life, which kind of come together in that place and that moment in time on the bridge, which makes you feel that that really is it's a critical sort of bit of infrastructure. And that's what we talk about, about trying to make city transport work harder and city infrastructure work harder to unlock additional benefits for people. Mm. It wasn't the um, closure of the bridge that inspired you to quit your job, was it? Because I, I noticed it happened in the same month. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Maybe, just, maybe that was just fate. I'm not sure. Um, I'm just imagining. Um, I love that you um, you like going up and talking to people because uh, I also mm. do that. And I guess that's one of the joys of being a journalist is that you kind of got an excuse to talk to people. And uh, it's a bit old school, maybe, because so much is online these days. But you do get quite interesting stories from people, actually, and they can be quite open. Yeah, you're right. I, th I think a lot of that stems from training and then qualifying as an architect, because when you're at architecture school, part of what you're doing is trying to understand the built environment, how people are interacting with streets with public spaces and I mean some of the stuff we used to do in sort of undergrad which you know looking back at it now is probably uh, particularly now as a, with, with, with the pandemic would be frowned upon but um, I think that was really instructive in sort of making you sort of forcing you to in, interact with people and, and really try to understand how other people are experiencing urban space. Mm. That was one of um, Jan Gell's, uh, I think it was his wife's criticism of the famous urbanist inspired him to start looking and observing people. That was that I think she's a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And she was saying, well, the problem with architects is that you don't build for people mm. or you don't think about people. But it really is so important, isn't it? And I guess that's where the crossover is with the public realm. Yeah, so, so I, th I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I think only by speaking to people about their lived experience experience of the built environment can you really get a, a re, sort of a representative understanding of, of what people are doing in cities and you know the ways in which cities should be designed for them and so you found that a lot of people basically wanted to keep the bridge open to people walking and, and cycling yeah so I think we had three key findings the first one is that a greater percentage of those surveyed considered that the closure of the bridge to motorized vehicles had some benefits so, I mean, it's worth pointing out that a lot of the people we spoke to traditionally crossed the bridge using a car. And a lot of these people were telling us that actually, um, you know, that they were recognising the benefits, not, not only for themselves, but for the wider community. So we're talking about uh, less pollution, uh, less noise, 
a more pleasant experience of crossing the bridge. And as I say, some people actually making these positive lifestyle changes. And then I think another one is, as you said, is 41% believe that the bridge should be reopened to public transport, cyclists and pedestrians only, um, which was just a little bit lower than reopening it to everybody. Whereas interestingly, young people who sadly I, I can't classify myself as as that anymore, which uh, is aged 29 years and, and under. So that the bigger percentage of those did actually want a public transport, walking and cycling bridge, which I find really encouraging. I think finally, this is something like the red herring we threw out at the end of the survey is would you consider or would you want the bridge to be used, for instance, as a community market one day a month? And 76% of people agreed that that was a great idea. And I think back to sort of anecdotes, I mean, I was sort of chasing this hard-nosed businessman across the bridge. I mean, he was answering questions, but he was sort of <laughs> trying to get away <laughs> at the same time. And um, so when I said to him, what about, uh, you know, a market, a communal market on the bridge one day a month? And he sort of stopped in his tracks and turned around. I thought, oh, no, no, I've really done it. You know, so I was sort of like backing off and, he sort of, you know, beamed into a smile, said, that's a great idea. And then he just walked off. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think part of what we're trying to do is also raise people's awareness of the possibilities of city space. Mm. And I think that's really important. And just just in terms of the timing of when we set up, I think it's worth pointing out that 2019 London had its first citywide car free day mm. as well. And so that was in September. Um, just just actually just before um, Burning Bridges was, was published. So I do think there's this appetite amongst not only Londoners, but amongst city users more broadly at the moment, which has obviously been compounded with the pandemic in terms of uh, people's appreciation of the need for sort of better urban space, you know, mental health, um, urban resilience, these kinds of things. So I think it's, I think hopefully things are sort of coming together mm. quite nicely now, but yeah. Obviously, there's always opposition to that. Yeah, and you, um, we'll talk later about some more recent research that you've done into this area mm. about um, younger Londoners. So that was your 2019 winning piece. The 2021 wrote about cargo bikes. It was a two-parter uh, on non-commercial mm. cargo bike use in London. Uh, the first part was a, well, maybe you can tell us, actually. Yeah, sure. So, again, I think it's just about being out and experiencing the city on the streets and in public spaces. And so one thing I noticed was that all these kind of, I didn't know there were cargo bikes then. They just looked like very odd sort of types of cycle and um, were sort of whizzing around, and particularly in central London. And particularly I noticed, um, you know, men and women in sort of pink jackets, which I'll come on to oh, yeah. in a minute. <laughs> and um yeah so I, I didn't really understand what they were but they seemed to be sort of everywhere suddenly and um sort of speaking to other people they didn't really realize either so I did a bit of research and I found that these were obviously cargo bikes um but I think through doing some cursory research two things came out so one was that um there were sort of family buying guides in terms of these would be the best cargo bikes for your for your family, for instance, you know, sort of a comparative sort of article, or you would have sort of articles which were looking at commercial use specifically. So why cargo bikes were better for deliveries and logistics in big cities. And so to my mind, there was a definite gap there and that no one had yet to make the link between 
how the trailblazing, as it were, of the commercial sector could benefit the non-commercial sector, how these sort of residual gains could, could come across. So that was really the, I guess, the basis for writing Sharing the Load is trying to understand firstly what cargo bikes are, who uses cargo bikes in London, uh, but secondly, sort of trying to understand how the broader um, issues of sort of safety, regulation, infrastructure, demand, accessibility, these kind of things would either help to promote or prevent the uptake of the mode in the non-commercial sector. And you kind of split the two pieces up that way, don't you? There's, you've got a bit of first-person experience. So you have a go on one of these bike taxis, the people in pink jackets, and that's the cargo bike. And then you do some interviews with people who use cargo bikes. You do a bit of history and context because obviously cargo bikes aren't a new thing. They've been around mm. for since since the bicycle was invented mm. almost. Mm. And then you go on to talk about the barriers of uptake, like you said, the, the fear of danger on the roads, mm. the risk of theft, uh, lack of parking spaces, and also the perceptions not being a cyclist mm. were quite interesting ones, actually. So people not identifying as cyclists and not seeing this as something for them. But quite a lot of the time, people just don't really know what cargo bikes are, do they? Mm. So you kind of explore that a little bit. Mm. And then you go on to produce um, some recommendations for getting Londoners using cargo bikes more, which is quite interesting. And I guess that's where the kind of journalism crosses over with the perhaps more policy think tank side mm. of what you do. Yeah, I, th- I think, first of all, you know, we felt we needed to split it up into two articles because it's, it's kind of one of those things, it's, it's just like a runaway train. Once you start the research, yeah. sometimes um, it just sort of, you know, gets ahead of you and there's so much to include. So we, we made a conscious decision to sort of split it up and as you say, in the first part, sort of try to und- identify what cargo bikes are and who uses them and then sort of scrutinise them against these different metrics in, in the second part. Again, coming back to the human story, that's that's really important. So we wanted this first-hand qualitative research just to sort of understand what people's motivations for using them were and what their aspirations for, for future use were. I think that, yeah, in terms of um, a lot of what you said in terms of culture, safety, things like that, we did find that generally cargo bike users are typically experienced cyclists, um, no matter if they're in the communal, in the commercial or in the non-commercial sector. So I think for us, one of the big things is about trying to lower the barriers to cycling. And that is just crucial, not only in London, but in other cities across the UK, if you're going to build a broader and deeper base of experienced cyclists who may in turn then want to use or consider using a cargo bike. Because I think another thing we found was that actually, and we called it a cargo bike decision-making continuum, which is essentially, <laughs> sounds a bit sort of uh, bit sort of long-winded, but it's essentially this idea that, and this is what a lot of people reported to us, is that it could take users years to decide to buy or purchase a cargo bike. Um, from from the time when they first think about doing so. I guess for us, you know, it's about trying to understand what are the key barriers, um, which if they can be removed would actually accelerate this process. Um, and I think, as, as you pointed out, one of the key barriers here is uh, a lack of secure on-street parking. And, and this really is inherent with cities because unlike standard cycles where you could probably carry one up a flight of stairs and put it in your front hall or your front living room, you know, the weight of a cargo bike is really prohibitive to, towards doing that. And I think in terms of parking, theft is also closely associated with that. I think that's a real worry. And 
Um, what we found or what we're recommending is that actually local authorities need to take the lead on this. I think there has been great work in boroughs recently, and I think part of this has come down to sort of the street space funding. Um, so these are sort of COVID-19 measures, which has unleashed additional funding for local councils. Mm. I guess the problem with that is, is that a lot of these cycle hangers, as they're called, do not actually facilitate or do not actually allow for non-standard cycles. So not just cargo bikes, but recumbents, trikes, all these other types of cycles. So we do think, and this is what the evidence is telling us, that really local councils should be looking to sort of take a bit more of a lead on this. I guess it's such a an enormous financial outlay, but it's amazing it takes so long for someone to go from the point where they're aware of a cargo bike and then they they get through various phases perhaps mm. and then they get to the stage where they want to buy one, but it's a lot of money. And you you mentioned in your article about how one of the shops that sells these things, their first customers were people from Europe mm. where, you know, they came from countries where this sort of thing is normal, where using cargo bikes is normal. And so they'd already gone through this process. They know that it's like a normal, it's like an okay thing to do. They're safe. It's doable. And then it was only when people started to see others doing it and it was sometimes it was like friends of people who had them mm. that they then started to to go to go on to look at them themselves and have a go and one of the things that the shop did was do kind of consultations basically mm. they'd have one-on-one sessions with people and they go through the options and that you ride them it's a little bit like e-bikes but but kind of bigger because mm. you know, it's the same thing it's just about understanding them first isn't it and so that was quite interesting and I, I do like how um people talk about solutions based journalism there's, there's a lot of bad news going on but it is good to see a problem looked at and then some solutions reached or some suggestions and I guess mm. that that kind of crosses over with yeah as I said before with what you're doing um, with Fair City also now you are taking this another step aren't you with my colleagues at the Active Travel Academy mm. and you're updating the piece to become a, a paper perhaps you could talk to us about that. So yeah that's a good question I think um it was important for us to update the research in light of the pandemic. And I think one of the key things of the pandemic is that it actually demonstrated the enduring value of the cycle as a mode of transport in that people were turning to it, you know, not to autonomous vehicles or, or other sort of technological solutions, but something as simple as a cycle, which is, you know, a 19th century mode of transport used to confront a very, you know, 21st century problem. Um, so firstly, that was that was really positive for us. And in terms of cargo bikes specifically, I think pandemic, as well as sort of increasing cycle use, uh, increase those using cargo bikes as well. It sounds like maybe this we're talking about the continuum that maybe the pandemic acted as a catalyst to allow people to skip forward a few steps where maybe they might have mulled something over for a few months or even years that they've they've suddenly realised actually now is the time for me to, to, to start using one of these things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, in fact, one of the people we spoke to said that she had been contemplating using a cargo bike for, again, a couple of years. And um, I think for her, the pandemic was just that final push, which actually got her kind of over the line because of obviously the hesitancy of using public transport, um, not wanting to drive a car. I think another thing which is worth pointing out is we're talking here about purchasing cargo bikes, but actually hiring cargo bikes is just as important if we're going to get more Londoners using them. And actually the trial which this lady had used or the scheme this lady had used was um, a scheme between Pedal My Wheels, who are a London-based 
Cargo Bike Supplier and Richmond Council, which actually enabled her to per, to sorry hire a cargo bike on a three month trial basis, but for very low risk. Um, and obviously, one of the big things with cargo bikes is that it can always be cost prohibitive. So yeah. enabling people to access them in more accessible ways, more financial ways, is obviously really important. And so I think that more schemes like this definitely need to be rolled out um, just to sort of, you know, entice people to consider using cargo bikes, particularly those who may not be comfortable with expending so much money up front. To, to, you know to purchase one yeah and these schemes have very they've been various of these schemes haven't they and and they've been really successful at helping people um to get into to get into kind of cargo bikes and to understand what they are and and whether they want them it's a bit of a try before you buy so this is now going to become um a paper and and what kind of form is that gonna take yeah sure um so it's we're gonna try and release it in two ways so one is with the ata mm-hmm. um, and that's going to be more an academic paper yeah. um we really wanted to work with the actor travel academy um i think obviously winning the two awards with yourselves was great and um i think that the work that the ata are doing is really important and secondly what we want to do is release it as a publication on on our own website mm-hmm. so something a little less academic making it more graphically accessible for people and I think what we're also looking to do is actually move the debate forward a bit on cargo bikes now. So on the one hand, there's still this lack of knowledge, perhaps, as to what they are, which obviously is building and is increasing. And it's really important we keep pushing that and um, to be able to open it up to more and more users. But on the second hand, I think that just to understand cargo bikes through the lens of their commercial value in terms of city logistics is quite limiting and doesn't really do justice to such a a versatile mode. So what we're also looking to do is run a couple of articles in the lead up to the publication of the paper, um, which look at, so the commercial side specifically, not in terms of what the commercial benefits are, but actually who is responsible for a greater uptake, who's responsible for actually scaling up commercial cargo bike logistics. Uh, and secondly, we're also looking at the communal value of cargo bikes, which I think is an area which has gone really under the under the radar, but has really came of age almost with the pandemic in terms of speaking to a lot of people and, you know, local communities who weren't necessarily able to get provisions to vulnerable residents mm. um, in the early stage of the stages of the pandemic did, in fact, turn to cargo bikes in many cases to uh, to actually deliver the, these types of services mm. um which which i think ties into the hyper local nature of cargo bikes more fundamentally um which again looks towards the commercial sector so i think that there's a really exciting opportunity here to look at other ways in which cargo bikes can be used and try and understand their their use cases um a bit differently whilst also trying to obviously promote and sort of disseminate their um, their use more broadly amongst new users as well. So by communal use, you mean what? So at the beginning of the lockdown, a lot of people actually turned to the cargo bike to help serve local communities. Uh, a fellow social enterprise in East London, so Hackney Base, Carry Me Bikes, which is run by Alex Stredwick, she relayed to me that a lot of people came to her actually with the intention of hiring out cargo bikes to help run deliveries to their local communities, which um, weren't able to sort of access any government aid at that at that point in time. I think another thing is the guys I was referring to earlier who were whizzing around in pink jackets. So that's Pedal Me, which is 
co-founded by Ben Knowles and Chris Dixon. And they actually worked in combination with Lambeth Council to deliver, I think, up to 10,000 packages to vulnerable residents in Lambeth. So they really sort of drew upon their commercial cargo bike acumen to deliver a sort of a communal service there in combination with the council. So I don't think it was just delivering packages, but it was also taking vulnerable residents to and from hospital visits. So obviously you're our only double winner of the Active Travel Media Awards. Has it been good for you to, I don't know, to be recognised fairly early on, I guess, in your in your journalistic career? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been a bit of a shock, obviously. <laughs> it's been great. I mean, um, it's I think the main thing for us is that it proves that we're on the right path in terms of what we're trying to achieve and the ways in which we're going about it. And I think that it's almost a double-edged sword with what's happening, particularly with the pandemic, is there's a lot of social media noise. Um, And I think it's about trying to cut through that with high quality and robust research. It's nice that that gets recognised, but obviously as long as that is actually trying to deliver some social impact, which is something we're keen on, achieving as well um yeah and the your pieces are a bit different too in in that they're kind of long form there's a lot of research that goes into it and there's a bit of a kind of nod to policy we started off the active travel media awards to highlight good practice in in the field and because obviously there's you know there's some great work that goes on out there that doesn't always get recognized and just to highlight best practice and to show that good work is being done and to give people a bit of a platform I don't know if you want to say who inspires you in terms of who's writing or on active travel. Yeah, I think a lot of people are doing a number of important things at the moment. I think you've got people like Carlton Reed, which writes for Forbes magazine. Um, I always enjoy uh, reading his work, and I think it seems to be quite on the money in terms of the points he's making. Mm. Um, a fellow winner, um, first year winner, was Andrea Sandal, who lucky enough to meet at the awards last year when we could actually meet in person, which I know, seems like quite... Nice? Yeah, it seems like quite a luxury, doesn't it? Um, but she wrote a really good piece this year about um, women cycling and, and how we need to sort of lower the barriers to get more women cycling. So yeah. she's doing some really good sort of investigative stuff there. I think even yourself, some of the stuff you've done on sort of LTNs for The Guardian and, and obviously active travel more broadly. I think more generally, though, it's just anyone that's taking the time to write good quality and sort of engaging work which is representative as well of the things that are going on but usually with a bit of a positive topspin because I think it's very easy to get drawn into the partisanship which it seems to be residing around active travel at the moment which Mm. again has been compounded by the pandemic so people that really are just trying to get on and write good bits of journalism but doing it from sort of a, um, a constructive viewpoint as opposed to a negative or a destructive point of view. Yes, I mean, so much of uh, what we considered normal has been uh, taken away from us. And I think active travel is one area in which we can be, there's a chance to be positive and to look mm. at solutions for society, not only during the pandemic, but going forward as a society and all of the other problems that we're facing, you know, in terms of air pollution and congestion and all of those problems, which definitely haven't disappeared. So you have your own podcast as part of one of the things that you do for Fair City. Um, and you've done some quite interesting interviews from around the world with different different professionals in different cities from Addis Ababa to Auckland, Bogota, Detroit, London and Paris. Um, mm-hmm. You and your colleague, 
Richard Lambert. And there have been some really interesting pieces around that. Is, is that kind of part of your efforts to look more in depth at these problems and to seek out solutions, perhaps, for some of these um, issues around transport that we have? Yeah, I, I think that when the pandemic hit, I mean, we, we were thinking anyway as an organisation, how can we how can we sort of branch out beyond London, I guess, first of all, because obviously, you know, the pieces we were done were specifically London centric because of the fact that we sort of reside in London and we're based in London. But um, I think, yeah, more broadly, when the pandemic hit, there was seemed to me to be this sort of oversaturation of written media. And um, whilst a lot of it was interesting, a lot of people were sort of focusing on what was happening and how cities could look post pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, not enough people were really looking at why these things were happening. Yeah. So as an example, you know, it was well documented that in Bogota, they're able to quickly implement 47 kilometres of emergency cycleways. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were suggesting, you know, why couldn't this happen in London? But I think until you actually drill down and try to speak to people who know about these things in terms of explaining this, you may not necessarily find the answer. So for us, it was really trying to drill down, as I said, into these issues in each specific uh, city and sort of looking at how governance, geography, culture were informing these different things. Mm. The guy from Addis Ababa was absolutely fascinating mm. in terms of just understanding the the kind of reasoning behind what was happening and the mm. um, and the kind of context, and just really seemed to have a really deep understanding of the problems and the context of the city and within Africa and what they were doing and why and it was super interesting to listen to him actually and it was great to hear from someone in the global south yeah I mean I think we were very lucky in terms of um, we actually managed to get uh, either a practitioner or an academic from a global city from every inhabited continent in the world which was great because it really gave us this broad perspective of what was going on and like you say I think only by sort of like asking the tougher questions and and going a bit deeper in terms of trying to understand why these things were happening Mm. were we getting any um any sort of answers and Mm. I think that was crystallized in our piece which is connecting continents um and really the thing with that is that we were looking at the different trajectory of these cities Mm -hmm. so that was the key thing for us so why were certain things happening in cities which were not happening in others and Mm. what we put that down to was that the the trajectory that these cities were on so as an example Singapore were able to uh, deal quite well with the pandemic in terms of green urban space green infrastructure and you look at the way that they've been prioritizing those things since sort of the 1950s and 60s on the other hand the city on the shortest trajectory is Paris and Paris are doing great things at the moment you know Anne Hidalgo is constantly in the in the news in terms of whether it's greening the Champs-Élysées or banning cars completely. And I think this is because Paris is on this very unique trajectory where they're in fact aiming for the 2024 Olympics, which mm. again is something which wasn't hasn't really been talked about yet. Mm. But I think that we we picked up in our research. So understanding what trajectory cities are on is quite instructive in understanding how they may then respond to the pandemic and, and subsequent sort of issues moving forward and in terms of fair city itself we're kind of working on this voluntarily am i right i think we're in a position now where we're about to incorporate as a social enterprise and Mm. i think that's based on the strength of the the work we've been doing um obviously Mm. it's nice to be recognized but 
I think we've been working on things which we feel are important to us and our stakeholders. Mm. Um, I think also by default of doing this, we've built up quite a good network of mm. like-minded people who we would sort of like to collaborate with. Um, we actually did a piece with um, disabled cycling charity Wheels for Wellbeing just before yeah. Christmas, which which was our first sort of paid piece of work. So we are looking to um, do both consultancy work, sort of collaborating with, as I say, like-minded organisations, but also by default of becoming a social enterprise, accessing grant funding. Um, so hopefully <laughs> it won't always be done on a voluntary basis. Yeah. And obviously if there are any donors out there with big pockets who have got a <laughs> an active travel bent then um, feel free to get in touch and I'm sure we can work something out because <laughs> um, I mean this is a problem I know this is a problem with journalism and perhaps it's a problem in the I don't know, advocacy sector that it's it kind mm. of ends up being people who can who have some way of kind of supporting themselves while they work for free and and it's it's quite an interesting one isn't it it's it, it's obviously doing good work but it's it's kind of how do we reach out to other people who maybe don't have the resources to work for free? And I know that you're talking about um, having guest blogs from the built environment sector on your mm. uh, on your website at some point. Maybe you could tell us a bit about, bit about that, how maybe aspiring journalists or people in the built environment sector can get involved. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think that's sort of, again, fundamental to setting up as a social enterprise is that we want to provide a platform for sort of young professionals or early stage professionals to actually share what they you know what their experiences of the the built environment are Mm -hmm. and the sort of knowledge and expertise which they have or an idea that they want to sort of promote Um, and I remember when I first moved to London sort of in my mid-20s I was you know I think think like most sort of journalists starting up you know looking for someone to publish your work and, and just working really hard to try and get that opportunity and yeah. to get that opening so I think for us it, it's important to do that not only to support and try and uh, potentially nurture people and who who have an idea but also I guess to obviously to sort of um, help educate us and help help us sort of stay in touch with issues from around the country so mm. I, I hope there are some reciprocal benefits to it. Hmm. Will there be? Um, will these be paid gigs? Do you think? I guess no um, one's getting paid yet. <laughs> I, I would like to say yes. Um, that is our intention. I think that again, there is something in journalism where you're just expected to work for free on the basis yes, of definitely. yeah of, of getting the exposure or the publication with sort of you know a, a big magazine or a mm. big you know a big platform. But actually, yeah, we we did. We do want to pay people um, yeah. because it's it's a recognition of the value that they bring. Yeah. Um, and I think if you provide a bit more of an incentive for people as well, then they're more likely to probably try, not necessarily try harder, but, you know, to, to actually focus more and, and produce a better piece of work, which is mm. of paramount importance. It's about producing work, which is, is as good as possible, really. Yeah, and about recognising um, the value yeah. of people's expertise, or yeah, yeah. And it can be quite exclusion exclusionary because they say that you mm. know, if you're um, with journalism, certainly if you're um, unless you have some way of supporting yourself while you work for free, it's just impossible. You know, that's why yeah. journalism's so kind of white and middle class, and um, often yeah. a very small pool of education establishments. So um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one, but that's good to hear. 
Yeah, we talked earlier about the kind of difference between generations on Hammersmith Bridge and how they felt that the future of the bridge might look and what they would like to see. And there was a definite kind of age bit, wasn't there? The younger people tended to want Mm -hmm. to see um, fewer cars. And you've been doing some further research on that in terms of Generation Z and transport. And so perhaps we could finish by asking you about that and what you've learned and what where Fair City is going next. Yeah, sure. We've been working with a West London school, Northolt, for just over a year now. So first of all, with their year sixes and sevens, so sort of 12 and 13 year olds, um, where we went into the school and we sort of discussed with them potentially why they should consider making more sustainable travel choices. Uh, we, we were due to do some follow up work with them, but obviously COVID intervened. Mm. Um, what we then did is we went back and we worked with their sixth formers. So the school had some priorities which they wanted to try and realise through their collaboration with us and looking at things like career paths and why students should be more aware of how their travel choices are impacting other people. So that's what we we really did with them. We've done this piece of work called Generation Z, which I'm really enthused about because it, it does sort of you know, suggest that there there are reasons to be hopeful. And just to sort of say there's a, a fallacy that, you know, it's important that we engage with younger people because they are obviously the city users of tomorrow. I think that's incorrect. They are the city users of now, today. Yeah. And, you know, everyone has got a stake in their city and younger people should be consulted mm. upon that because obviously, Yes, you know, they will be using the city more tomorrow, but it's it's just about trying to raise that awareness now, um, I guess, maybe when people are most receptive. So I think what we did with them was we did initial survey. Um, obviously, this was all anonymous and online where they sort of told us about their priorities. So they told us that ease and convenience were put important to them, as well as the importance of their local areas. And a lot of them quite encouragingly thought that moving around London via public transport in future was was really important. So I think that's a great advert for the importance of public transport, which is obviously, particularly here in London, I guess under threat because of the, the predominantly um, fare-based revenue model, which TfL have to sort of contend with, which I guess has led to, you know, this upcoming, I think it's the end of March or beginning of April, where free travel for under-18s will be sadly cut unless some some sort of compromise is found. But I think that aside, we we sort of took the survey findings to construct a webinar. Um, So what we did is actually a lot of the people we engaged with in the Connecting Continents work, we sort of called them up and, you know, we asked them to provide a, you know, a snapshot of what was going on in their different cities, countries and cultures. And I think that really resonated with the young people who subsequently watched watched the webinar because I think they saw that how what they were doing was impacting upon other people in faraway places such as Addis Ababa or Southern Hemisphere continents and countries. But also, it I guess it gave them an insight into how they may then you know be able to do certain things within their own careers, um, which they may not have thought possible. So yeah, I think I think you know obviously. I'm biased, but I think it's a good, I think it's a great piece of research and um, it's a great study. And I think it's something we're looking to build on in the future, potentially working with with other schools and, and hopefully local authorities to really unlock the value of what we're trying to uh, try to do here. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. It's been great to talk to you. Great. Thanks a lot, Laura. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Active Travel podcast. You can find us online on our website at 
blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ATA forward slash podcast. We're on most podcasting hosts and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at active underscore ATA. Let us know what you think. Drop us a tweet or an email at activetravelacademy at westminster.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Until next time.